most well-known of all the Pharisees, at least at one point, was a guy who was called Saul. We know him by Paul. Nicodemus was one of these. He was a teacher of Israel. Maybe even, according to the words of Jesus in verse 10, the preeminent teacher among all of the Pharisees, an expert in the what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish Scripture, an expert in its interpretation and its various interpretations, and again, a tremendous teacher, leader of the people of God. Nicodemus was also a part of the Sanhedrin. It doesn't say that explicitly in those opening verses, but it does say that he was a ruler of the Jews. And that lets us know that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin being the leading religious and political and judicial body in in all of Jewish life. They were like the Jewish Supreme Court and the Jewish Senate wrapped up into one. So Nicodemus was an extremely important and an extremely powerful man. Imagine the most important and powerful man you can in their life among the people's view, and Nicodemus was one of them. Nicodemus, it says here, came to Jesus at night. It doesn't tell us why. But I think one of the things that we can assume is that he came to Jesus at night because it made it less likely that he would be seen. Because among the circles in which Nicodemus ran, Jesus wasn't extremely popular. The people that Nicodemus worked with were the leading opponents of Jesus, would be involved in the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. So he came by cover of night, of darkness. But whenever John uses day and night or light and dark in his gospel, there's more to it than meets the eye. When John speaks of darkness or night, in in every instance, on every occasion, there's a, a symbolism that goes along with the literal darkness. And the symbolism here would be the darkness of Nicodemus's spiritual condition. Darkness, the opposite of God, the opposite of light, the opposite of truth, the opposite of right. So if you will, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark. And Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark. Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. Professor, And at the very least, it communicates to us that Nicodemus respected Jesus as an equal, for he too was a rabbi, a teacher. And it may communicate even more than that to us about the view that Nicodemus had of Jesus, that he respected Jesus, that he looked up to Jesus, because here you have the teacher of Israel coming to someone else to be taught. So maybe he sees Jesus as his superior. 
He acknowledged that Jesus was from God, that he was a teacher who had come from God. And I don't know that that means that Nicodemus right then understood that Jesus had come from heaven, that he was the divine word of God. But at the very least, it lets us know that Nicodemus knew that God was with Jesus. That he was speaking through him. That he empowered his ministry. Maybe he meant more by it, but at the very least, that. And if you pay careful attention to the opening verses, it's not just that Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was from God, but that he spoke on behalf of others who acknowledged that Jesus was from God too. Did you see that he used this phrasing? We know that you're a teacher who is from God. Indicating to us that there were probably other Pharisees who secretly believed in Jesus, if not fully believing in Jesus, were sympathetic to Jesus and weren't nearly as opposed to Him as what some of the others were. This may even indicate to us that among the 70 in the Sanhedrin, there were others who, like Nicodemus, were open to the idea that Jesus wasn't as bad as what the others thought He was. The reason that Nicodemus and some of the others knew that Jesus was from God is because of the signs that He did. For those of you that have been around for teaching thus far in John, or for those of you that have any familiarity whatsoever with the Gospel of John, you know that that word signs is very important in the book. At the end of the Gospel, John said, Jesus did a whole bunch of signs that all the books of the world couldn't contain, but I've written about the ones that I've written about so that you would believe that He is the Messiah and the Son of God and that by believing you would have life. Signs were miracles that Jesus did to point to something greater than the fact that He simply had the power to do miracles. Now thus far, John has only recorded one of these signs that Jesus had done. That was the turning of the water into wine. But in the passage at the end of chapter 2 last week, He did reference that while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover, that he did a bunch of signs among the people. And either Nicodemus had observed these or had heard the talk about these signs that Jesus was doing. From these signs, Nicodemus and others like him had deduced that Jesus was from God because he said no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Nicodemus rightly understood that these things Jesus did were things that only God could do. That's like the true disciples of Jesus, the apostles. When you read about them witnessing some of the miracles that Jesus did, their immediate response was, what kind of man is this? And what they were getting at is, he's no ordinary man at all. He does things only God can do. Therefore, in the apostles' mind, they quickly figured out that he was God. 
So I think it's safe to say that we could say about Nicodemus that he had some faith. Some type of belief in Jesus. But at this point, not saving faith. Now he'll get there later on. You remember Nicodemus plays a pretty prominent part in the the burial of Jesus. Really sticking his neck out on the line. I mean, he's not in the dark any, any longer at that point. But at this point, whatever faith he had wasn't saving faith. And that would make him like the people that we read about in the passage last week. You remember? They saw the signs Jesus was doing in Jerusalem during the Passover. And they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't believe in their belief. Whatever their belief was, it wasn't saving belief. We could say about Nicodemus then that at this point in his life, he was a searcher. And that may describe some of you. That may describe you. I'm a searcher. I haven't decided, but I'm looking. I'm investigating and I'm searching. And look, that's good. You'd better rather be a searcher than a non-searcher. But I do want to say to you, searching's only good when it leads you to the right conclusion about Jesus. Because if you search and don't come to the right conclusion, then it probably would have been better off for you if you'd never searched in the first place. The question here is why did Jesus, or rather why did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Why? My answer would be that Nicodemus was trying to figure out who Jesus is, who Jesus was. That's what he's getting at when he says, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. But he didn't just come to say that to Jesus, he's digging for something, right? And what he's trying to dig up, what he's trying to determine is if Jesus is the Messiah. Is Jesus the promised Savior, Deliverer, King? Because you see, if Jesus was the Christ, then that meant that the kingdom of the Christ was coming or had come. And if the kingdom was coming... Nicodemus wanted to be in it. At least, he wanted to be sure that he was in it. So in our language, I think we could say that Nicodemus was investigating becoming a Christian. Jesus knew Nicodemus' heart, didn't he? Just like he knew the hearts of those in verses 23 through 25 from last week. Just like he will know the heart of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Just like he knows the hearts of all people. Including your heart. And my heart. He knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. He knew what was on it. He knew what Nicodemus's heart was like. 
He knew without Nicodemus ever having to say it why Nicodemus had come. He knew all of the questions on Nicodemus's heart. He knew all of the doubts. He knew better than Nicodemus knew just what Nicodemus needed. And again, it's the same way with you and with me. Jesus knows all these things about us collectively and, and individually. So rather than beating around the bush, Jesus gets right to the heart of Nicodemus's heart. Jesus ever do that with you? Get right to the heart of your heart. He does this in verse 3. Look there, it says, Jesus replied, I assure you, that's verily, verily, truly, truly. I mean, you can count on this. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This verse and another liking in the passage is why I'm saying this morning, you must be born again. It's the first must in becoming a Christian. You must be born again. That is, you must experience a second birth. Born again could also be translated born from above. In that case, we could put it this way. You must experience a supernatural birth. A heavenly birth. A birth from God. And knowing that we should must experience a birth from God shouldn't be novel to us. Flip back to John chapter 1. We've already studied. Look at verses 12 and 13 there. In the, in the early verses of this gospel, John gets to this, and it's a theme that he comes back to here in chapter 3, and he'll keep coming back to. Verse 12, John chapter 1 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but how were they born? Of God. They had been born of God. Again, what we're seeing here is the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of what theologians, doctrinal students of the Bible would call regeneration. And it was true even for Nicodemus. Are you with me on that this morning and the implications of that? Even Nicodemus, important and powerful Nicodemus, even dedicated to the law of God, Nicodemus, and for extra credit, dedicated to extra laws of men, Nicodemus, even ruling Nicodemus, had to be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God. 
And I am quite confident in saying that if Nicodemus, a Jew of the Jews, to use language Paul applied to himself, if even Nicodemus had to be born again, then it's true for every single one of us. I don't know what your spiritual resume looks like, but I bet it doesn't match up to Nicodemus's. All of us start several steps behind in that we're not Jews. And, and from there it probably goes downhill. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And someone there could be translated anyone. Unless anyone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth is a requirement for seeing the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here refers to the domain where God rules. The sphere of, of God's rule, of Christ's rule. When we hear about God's kingdom, I want us to understand that there's an aspect of God's kingdom, an aspect of His rule that is general. It's inclusive of everywhere and everyone. It's universal. He rules over all. But there's also an aspect of God's kingdom and God's rule which is specific. And it's exclusive to those who belong to Him. And those who are a part of His family through faith in Jesus. When Jesus references the kingdom of God here, do you know which aspect of the kingdom he's talking about? Not the universal kingdom, but the specific kingdom. He's talking about his rule over his people, his family, his children, his body, his house. And since the first coming of Jesus, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven has been a spiritual kingdom. That is, you can't see it with the naked eye. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world that we're more familiar with. But one day, this spiritual kingdom will become a physical kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and it will become this when Jesus comes again. And it will not only be an earthly kingdom, but it will be an eternal kingdom. You see that in Daniel chapter 2. You see that in Daniel chapter 7. We've seen it recently on Wednesday nights in Revelation chapter 5. This promise of a specific kingdom goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And to a covenant that God had made with King David. That one would come from him that would reign like David but in a far superior way. And he would establish a kingdom of which there would be no end. It would be an eternal, everlasting kingdom. That's why the Messiah was coming. It's why the Jews were looking for a Messiah. Because he would be the king of this promised kingdom. Jesus came to set it up. He came to fulfill these promises that God had made to David and to Israel. And he will finally and forever fulfill that covenant when he comes again.
being in the kingdom is synonymous with being a Christian. Because you see, to be a Christian is to submit to the rule of God. To acknowledge the rule of God even over our life. It's to submit to the rule of Christ in repentance and faith. You must be born again to be in the kingdom. You must be born again to become a Christian. And the rest of our passage explains more fully what it means to be born again. And it needs to because you see Nicodemus didn't understand, did he? We can see that in verse 4. Look there. But how can anyone be born when he is old? I get his question. I've been to a lot of births. I've never seen a baby born with gray hair. Seen wrinkled babies, but they're not wrinkled like old folks are wrinkled. Looks a little bit different. Maybe for that reason that we aren't carrying around pictures of our grandparents and great-grandparents showing them off to folks at the ballpark. But we do of our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Nicodemus said, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now look, Nicodemus understood here that Jesus was talking about a second birth. And if Jesus is right, then he's indicating that a first birth is not enough. And that would be an important realization for a Jew. Because you see, most of the Jews thought that by virtue of their first birth as a physical descendant of Abraham, they were good. They were automatically in the kingdom. Nothing required, no must. But Nicodemus didn't understand how it could happen, how this second birth could happen. Therefore, you might could argue that he's questioning here whether it actually could happen. Birth is a beginning, isn't it? This would mean yes. Birth is a beginning. If that's the case, how can you begin when you've already started? Or how can you begin when you've already begun? How can you begin again? Babies illustrate this. That birth is about being new. Babies look new. I've been real up and close and personal for four of them. They look new. I look at myself, I don't look new. My babies, when they were born, they look new. They smell new. Now, let's not go into when they don't smell new. Sometimes they smell real old and rotten. But they smell new. That's why when I'm around babies in the church, and I don't have any anymore, I just want to grab them up and feel their big old round heads and smell of them a little bit. Like new car smell. You can't get enough of it. Babies even act new. 
But how can you be new when you're old? That's what Nicodemus is getting at here. And we understand that. Because we have cliches like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Jesus isn't talking about a physical rebirth here. Nicodemus got that. That's why he made the ludicrous suggestion or question, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's not that he's considering the possibility of that. He's just eliminating that as a possibility. How then can one be born again? Before we get to Jesus' answer, how would you answer that question if someone asked you, how can I be born again? How would most people, how would most church people, most designated Christians people answer that question, how can one be born again? Probably something like this. Well, you have to talk to the preacher. Or you have to walk the aisle at the end of the service during an invitation. Maybe you have to talk to the preacher and walk the aisle. You have to pray a a prayer, a, a sinner's prayer. You have to join the church. You have to go through some class, you have to be baptized, you have to do the ABCs, A, admit to God you are a sinner, B, believe that Jesus is God's Son, C, confess your faith in the Lord, and boom, it's it's there. Or maybe we're really earnest and we would answer it in this way, how can I be born again? Well, you have to believe on Jesus, but we at least must recognize that that doesn't fully answer the question because we've already seen people that believe in Jesus whose belief was no good. In summary, most would answer this question with something or some things that a person must do. And I want you to contrast that answer with the answer of Jesus in verse 5. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. uh, Jesus answers Nicodemus' doubts with an assurance that this second birth could happen. In fact, he restates that it must happen. And he answers Nicodemus' how question with a parallel phrase to born again that he's used earlier. This parallel phrase being born of water and the Spirit. And Jesus used this phrase here to help Nicodemus understand the meaning of being born again. And to help him understand what being born again means, how it happens. So what does being born of water and of the Spirit mean? Well, some say it's a reference to water baptism and spirit baptism. 
But water baptism doesn't produce new birth. That would go against everything this passage is about. Can't be talking about water baptism. Until recently, I would have told you that that it's talking about physical birth, being born of water, and spiritual birth, being born of the Spirit, like verse 6, which does talk about physical and spiritual birth. But the more I've studied, I can find no evidence whatsoever that the Jews ever referred to physical birth with the phrase born of water or anything like it. And we'll see later that Jesus expected Nicodemus to know what he was talking about. So how would he have expected him to know what he was talking about by using the phrase born of water and the spirit? if born of water was not something they equated with physical birth. No, all of this is why I would suggest to you this morning that the origin of this phrase has to be in the Old Testament. And it is. I plan to read it for you this morning, but for the sake of time I won't. I'll summarize it for you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. God talks about restoring idolatrous Israel to himself. And he says, I'm going to wash you off with water and cleanse you of your sins and your idolatry. And then I'm going to create a new heart, a heart of flesh within you, and place a new spirit in you by my own spirit. To be born of water and the spirit then means that we must be born from what we are. Do you know what we are? We're sinners. We're dirty, rebellious, idolatrous sinners, and we must be born from that. All of that must be cleansed and washed away, symbolized by water. To be born of water in the Spirit also means we must be born with a new heart, with a new nature, because the old one is dead, and it's hard It's like stone. The new one that God would give us would be flesh and soft. Especially it would be soft towards God. And toward His commands. Whereas previously it hasn't been at all. Being born of water and the Spirit then is equivalent to this phrase we're familiar with. Out with the old and in with the new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 communicates that to us. It says, if any man is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Titus 3.5 says, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to note that as Jesus answers Nicodemus's how question, he doesn't talk about what we must do or what we can do. He talks about what God has to do. Jesus continues to answer Nicodemus's question of how in verse 6, look there, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. How can one be born again? By the Spirit. A reference to the Holy Spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. In our spirit, that's what makes us spiritual. He's talking about a 
spiritual birth, as we've already seen in verse 5, a spiritual birth that's caused by the Holy Spirit. Are you familiar with the story of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37? Wonderful illustration of this truth. Even after God had put flesh and muscles and meat and tendons and sinews and ligaments and skin on those dry old bones, they still were just as dead as they had been before until the Spirit came and entered them and gave them life. Flesh produces flesh. That is, humans with a human nature give birth to humans with a human nature. Humanity produces humanity. But that's not enough. It wasn't enough for Nicodemus. It wasn't enough for the Jews. It isn't enough for the religious church member today. Remember verse 13, in speaking of this birth, that makes us a part of the kingdom of God. Chapter 1, verse 13, who were born, not of blood or of the will of man or of the will of flesh, but of God. The Spirit produces spirit or what is spiritual. Only the Spirit can do this. Only God, not our parents, not our nation, not our individual goodness or effort. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. That's why Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. James 1.18 says, By His own choice He gave us new birth by the message of truth. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how is one born again? God does it. The Holy Spirit does it. He does it in our spirit, in our heart, in our nature. It's about what He does. It's about what He must do, not us. Not what we do, not what we must do, because we can't do it. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, 24, how hard it is for a man to enter the kingdom of God. You know how hard it is? It's impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Notice the contrast in the answers between what we give and what Jesus gave. Now look at verse 7. Let's wrap it up. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. This is something Nicodemus should have known or understood from the Scripture that he was an expert in the Old Testament. He should have understood the human heart and his own heart from what Scripture teaches about it. He should have understood his own need spiritually, his own sin And we should too. But we're easily deceived when it comes to matters like this, aren't we? What do we think about our own heart? I've got a good heart. Basically, I have a good heart. What do we think about the hearts of others? All others except the the very worst of humanity. Well, they've got a good heart. God bless his heart. She's killed 17 people, but God bless his heart. God knows his heart. And we're amazed when we hear that new birth, a new heart is a necessity, a must for becoming a Christian, but we shouldn't be. How does it happen? Verse 8. 
The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. New birth happens like the wind causes things to happen. The Spirit's compared to the wind here. I'm going to wrap it up. Stay with me. We don't know when he's coming or where he's going. We can't control him. Did you know you can't make the Spirit give you new birth or anyone else new birth for that matter? We can't see him. Here's the important thing. But when the Holy Spirit wants to, and where he wants to, and on whomever he wants to, he blows with the wind of new birth and regeneration, giving spiritual life to those who before were helplessly and hopelessly spiritually dead. And when he does, we know he's come because we can see his impact. We can see the results of his having been there just as clearly as we can see the results and the impact of a tornado. What are the results, you ask? I wish I had time to show you, but 1 John is a good book to read. Faith in Christ is a result. Obedience is a result. A life that's not characterized by sin and dominated by sin is a result. Perseverance is a result. Love is a result. So I ask you, has the Spirit, has the wind of God blown on you? If he has, you'll see the result. And so will others. John Calvin said about this passage, the sum of Christ's discourse here is that to be his true disciples, we must become new people. Your first step into the kingdom of God is to become a new man. That's why I say the first must to becoming a Christian is you must be born again. You know who Alfred Ward Tennyson is? Tennyson wrote one time, Ah, for a man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be. Any of you feel that way this morning? You ever felt that way before? I, I wish a new person would rise up in me so this old one would go away. It may be that you're sensing your need for new birth. And I bet you realize this morning, I don't need to make another decision. I don't need to make another declaration. But what I need is regeneration. I bet you realize this morning it's not something you can do because you've probably tried it a hundred times before. But it is something that God can do. Only God can do. So I would tell you seek Him for it. Ask Him for it. Believe Him for it. Look to Jesus for it. See who Jesus is and what He's done. 
And know that in this, you're on the path to becoming a Christian. And don't you quit your journey until you are. You'll know it when it happens. For those of us who do know that it's happened, continue to repent and believe on Jesus. And never quit thanking God for doing what we couldn't. What must happen to become a Christian? New birth. We must be born again. Would you stand with me and bow your heads?